welcome back to another amazing episode of the Film Alchemist Podcast. The show where we take the movies we love, break them apart, to find out what gives them their magic. I'm your host, Josh Griffey, joined as always by my friend, co-host, guy who doesn't tip and just wants to be a professional. Oh, which one was that one? But it's Alex Dandino. I tip. I tip. Yeah, all right, Mr. Payne, keep it to yourself. All right, guys, before today's excellent, excellent episode. See all these? I'm using the thesaurus today. I got I got called out. I'm thesaurusizing. Uh, before today's <laughs> outstanding episode, a little business, guys. It's official. We are on Patreon. That's right, patreon.com slash filmalchemistpod. It's the easiest, best, and most awesome way to help support the show. For as little as a dollar a month, guys, and we do assure you, we appreciate every single dollar, and it helps us out. Uh, you can get in, meet the community, see what we're working on over uh, in Patreon. And as you can, if you're able to, climb the Highlander tier ranking system, you can specifically select the movies you want to hear Alex and I discuss in a Patreon-exclusive library. Uh, we have some amazing picks coming up, a lot of fun stuff. Alex and I, right now, we, uh, we're at the end of the year, we were crunching ideas. Because now you know we record these way in advance. To make the Patreon <laughs> even better in this year, right? Uh, we know that all dollars are hard-earned, so we want to make sure that we're working hard to earn those dollars, too. So, again, that's patreon.com slash filmalchemistpod. The absolute best and most appreciated way to support the show. Thank you for those of you who support us. You mean the world to us. Thank you for those of you who are about to as well. You're the best. Go to the YouTube, right? Go to the YouTube. Uh, put a mug YouTube. to these colorized aliases we're using, right? Get to see our mugs. Uh, I look like Mr. Hasn't seen the sun in five years wide on the YouTube right now. I look like uh, Mr. Fat, so I think we're all good. <laughs> We'll have to fight over that name, I guess, too. Uh, so, yeah, the YouTube is Film Alchemist. The email, filmalchemistpod at gmail.com. You can find us on all the social media you're on. We're there, too. We're easy to get a hold of and love to hear from you guys. Also, if you want to help the show out, some free and simple and easy things you can do. Share us with your friends on social media. And make sure you're leaving us a five-star rating and review wherever you find the show. It does help us defeat... The, uh, the algorithmic narcs we got rolling around in the midst of our, our capers getting all up in our cahoots. Oh! <laughs> now that we've, we've protected our cahooting, let's get to business. All right, we are balls deep in this this month's curation. Uh, the pod had a rough day. I think it's what we'll call this <laughs> month. The pod had a rough day month. Um, Selected by a patron, Eden. So you go over there. Again, that's patreon.com slash filmalchemistpod. <laughs> The dollar. That's what we love. The dollars. We'll steal them if we need to. All right. Today's selection. Reservoir Dogs. The first uh, introduction to one Quentin Tarantino. A movie that, while small and streamlined and contained, to use some industry lingo, uh, its effects were not contained. This was a massive ripple effect through uh, the cinema scene of the time. You can honestly watch this film and just see its DNA and how it affected and started changing the way people were even writing screenplays um, after Reservoir Dogs came out. It'd been a long time, man, since I've gone back and watched this. Quentin Tarantino is pretty uh, omnipresent in a film fan's life. And when I got to film school, right, we had like that was one of the groups you were in, like the really hardcore Tarantino. It's kids. one of those posters that was on some student's wall. 
hundred percent. Yeah. So you had like your your Cohen brother kids, your horror movie kids, your Tarantino kids, right? Uh, you know, the art house kids. You had like your groups, right? My former roommate, one of my best friends in college, the man who actually designed our logo, Anthony Hugaboom, shouts out. Uh, wonderful guy, absolutely was obsessed with Quentin Tarantino. So I am very versed in Tarantino and uh, have had these discussions a lot. I hadn't been back to the start in quite a long time. I got to say, going back and rewatching Reservoir Dogs was fascinating. It's not exactly the movie I remembered. Alex, what were your opening thoughts returning to Reservoir Dogs? Yeah, it's interesting to watch now. I'll see, like I think that's the heart. I mean, that's that's the heart and soul of what this pod's going to be tonight is uh, how fascinating it was to watch this time because yeah, I've seen it like I don't know. I can't even count on him. I I don't have enough fingers or toes to tell you how many times I've probably seen this movie just by sheer force of will because it's just one of those movies you watch when you're in film school, are film school, are a film nerd. Um, I think the thing I was most surprised by, or maybe just taken aback by, was like, for this being Quentin Tarantino's debut, directorial debut, how fully formed of a filmmaker Quentin Tarantino came out as. I think that's like the thing that I took away the most from this is that all of the things that we love about Tarantino movies have refined over the years and not, but not changed. Like we all have. We all know exactly where certain things are going to go. We all know that there's going to be a big, long scene where people are having a very intense, interesting debate. It's going to be great. The dialogue is the king. And I think what's fascinating is this movie comes out and not only does it like completely change independent cinema, really, like I think that's like the most important thing is like, like for the industry at large, this movie shattered. It was like this one slacker and probably clerks are the two most are the three most infamous like sundance babies well the three at this time right were clerks reservoir dogs and then uh el mariachi right Right. those were like the real big el mariachi is yeah like for sure like those are the three at this time so i would say like this one though changes the landscape of cinema so much especially because this becomes this is what makes sundance sundance as we know it today like, to be honest with you, like, mm-hmm. there's nothing about what happens with Reservoir Dogs that doesn't completely change the industry and the way we view independent films, independent financing, independent directors themselves. And not only that, you're watching someone who came again, like has come out and we've seen it change over the years. But this is literally a man who's just mastered directing on his first go around, really. Like, not just master directing, but mastered the kind of movie he's going to make for the next, we're up to, like, what, 30 years? 20 or 30 years now? Yeah. Like, this is the kind of movie, and not only that, how many times, like, how many times have you seen this copycatted at this point? Like, even today, Well, we're still seeing this kind of thing. I think that's the thing. I think Tarantino might be the most copied filmmaker and a lot of what is funny about that to me is that Tarantino himself is just such a student yeah. of all these mediums that a lot of his stuff is just remixing, right? Yeah. Like remixing I famous don't think images. Realize, I don't think people yeah. realize how much he's sampling when he samples. He's like when a he master. Like, what's that guy everyone likes? Dead Mouses, right? 
Like, that's what Tarantino is of the cinema, right? He's like a, a fucking uh, orgy DJ, right? He's a master They're not sampler. orgies. What are they called? Raves. Not orgies, raves. A very different setup for very DJ. Very different, yes. <laughs> different smells, different locales. No, but uh, you can see a lot. I think what I was struck by is how stripped down I this was. I think in my mind, this film was one of those kind of epic movies I found at a young age, right? This is when you started to hear that thrown around, right? The cinema of cool. Yeah. Right. Oh, my God. It's just dripping with coolness. And so it became this big monumental thing in my mind. Watching it again today, it's just not. And I think what you find is that I think it's the screenplay that really rises through. Right. Because there's a lot of I mean, it's just a lot more still uh, at a lot of times than I think I remembered. Right. Well, this is the it has a lot of those like this is the thing. Right. Imagine that opening scene in the diner. Right. Mm -hmm. We're sitting here with these violent murderous criminals right they're going out to rob a diamond store but they're just meeting up at a cafe if you've lived in la we all used to go to cafes like that all the time right to have script meetings no ho no ho diner was yours and mine no ho diner yes we've all been there right and this movie starts out and it's not like a michael bay film where we start out with like a cool whooshing around like showing them working right this is oh look at them work they're sitting around and just arguing about the quality of dick that Madonna got in Like a Virgin and tipping. And so what it is is he's doing fucking bit comedy through the mouth of just a hangout with these violent criminals. So instead of a movie that sets them up as outlaws, even lovable outlaws, anything like that, they're just telling us they're just you. They're you, the audience. Come sit at the table with these. Like imagine if a dog day afternoon with Pacino, right? Imagine if you just went to Denny's with him and we're just shooting the shit over moons right, over right. Miami. Right. Right. Well, and it's that's what we that get. that that idea, though, changes. Right. Because then all of a sudden you can hear like 10,000 screenwriters just start jerking themselves. Oh, my God. I can just write my diatribes. Yeah. But that's exact. That's exactly what ends up happening. Yeah. That's exactly what ends up happening with the entire genre. Like. You know, Kevin Smith is a great example, takes it for a ride, man. Like he I mean, he saw Slacker, but like there's so much imprint of like everybody samples this now. Like it is what it is. Like Quentin Tarantino even samples himself. Like how many like even in the next movie, Pulp Fiction, he does the exact same setup at the very top of the movie. Death Proof is always the one that I go to because that scene, there's a diner scene in Death Proof that is almost identical to this. Like it's they they talk about music again like it's this fascinating it's fascinating to see it in the context of this is quentin tarantino's first fucking movie and this is this is the this is the setting and setting of the table for 30 years of filmmaking well it's the it's the charming element of independent film right is that the voice of the independent filmmaker becomes very present right and i I know a lot of people talk about, you know, that kind of thing, right? The French New Wave movies were about a moment, right? Or an emotion, right? Right. And then I, I remember Tarantino did this rant somewhere I was watching, right? Where he talked about, we used to tell the best stories, right? Those were like moment or emotion movies. And then in the 80s and 90s, we got caught up in these big tentpole IP blockbusters. And all of our movies became about a situation, right? I think his was... You know, some movies do that really well, like Speed, right? Mm-hmm. Speed is you take a situa- a movie situation, and you do it to the best it can be done, right? And he has this wonderful thing, but he's like, we forgot stories, man, where you just sit with characters and watch it unfold. And 
there's twists and turns and you don't know everything, right? And you're kind of learning as the movie goes. And I don't know that Reservoir Dogs is necessarily that, right? Like it's some like naturally organically unfolding story or this right, and that. Right. But what it is, right, is it's that opening scene where it's just, hey, instead of them talking about whatever the fuck, right? Right. Just have them have the conversations that we have. And I remember the movies that I fell in love with because in the 90s, I was a young, like becoming a teenager, right? So by the end of the 90s, as we're heading into film school, I was obsessed with any movie that had people just talking like we did, right? Right. Arguing about Star Wars and Clerks or arguing about Madonna lyrics in this movie. Right. That kind of stuff meant the world to me. The tip argument is one that I've still had this debate all the time with people, right? About the current state of tipping and how insane it is. Because right. my wife gets mad at me that I tip everywhere I go. Because she's like, what the fuck? She's like, you don't tip at Starbucks or wherever. Not Starbucks, like McDonald's. I think I tip. It's funny because in this movie, they're like, you don't tip McDonald's. Like, McDonald's ask you for tips now. Right, right. I tipped at a Taco Bell and Amy got incensed with rage with me. And I was like, the guy was staring at me like I was a piece of shit. Like, he's doing a terrible job making my 18 chimichangas <laughs> or whatever the fuck I ordered. Walking out of there with a fucking grocery sack of time. I'm tipping the guy, right? Right, right. And so, I, but it that little touch, right? And again, it's just this little fucking couple minute long scene at the start where we feel like we're part of the gang. And when you do that, like, fucking walkout, right? That super cool walkout intro. Mm -hmm. And then we just fucking hard cut into Mr. Orange bleeding everyone. You're like, oh, fuck, we're doing a movie. That is, I think, the really fascinating cut in the movie. Like, all of it's great, you know, but, like, to disarm your audience and again this is what what i mean when i say fully formed filmmaker quentin tarantino knew exactly what he was doing where he disarms his audience with this like clever diatribe about and i I do this shit all the time like i don't even realize i've done it at this point but it's like i love talking about like 90s pop music as being like some of the most sexually charged stuff you've ever heard in your life (laughs) i have an entire thing about genie in a bottle what it actually means and all this stuff Again, it's one of those things like we all have this like we all have one of those one of those bits, though, to hard cut and no exact not even hard cut. But like it starts with the audio, which is awesome because you're just like if you came into the movie blind, like having no idea what the movie was about, had no idea that these guys were fucking you. They're all dressed the same except for like nice guy Eddie and Joe. So you're like something's like. There's they're they're a band maybe or something like that. It's like, like the men in black are really into this dick conversation, <laughs> right? But it's like you have MIB you, went hard. If you come in blind, you have no idea what these guys yeah. are talking about. You or you have no idea what these guys are about to do. So when it hard cuts and it like you just hear like Mr. Orange, oh god, oh god, and I mean Tim Roth is just like. It's one of well, like, in the black. You start to hear, I'm gonna die. Yeah, I'm gonna I mean, die. It's one in of the, the all time. Like, it's one of my all time favorite. Just like childish wails of pain is like Tim Robbins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's going for it, dude. And but fucking, that whole thing, right? This is like one of the brilliant things in the script, right? So we're disarmed. We're doing the, you know, I'm gonna die. So already before we even see anything, then you cut to the white car just covered in blood. Covered Holy in shit. blood. And Harvey Keitel sitting there doing like lines right like long are you a doctor what are you a doctor and it's like jesus christ like hush just hush your mouth and drive faster I always, right I, I always forget you're gonna be okay you're gonna be okay yeah the but that's what i mean so I you admit it. and you're amateur and you're like jesus christ like get the script out of your face get this man the help he needs to get saved 
But that's what it, it it's just this blend that he manages to do. Somehow Tarantino can keep us in those tense life and death situations. Right. And the writing is just sharp. And I think, honestly, one of the things you see early on is that for his first movie, the cast that he is managing to get. Because I believe the story goes, right? He had written this and Natural Born Killers. Yeah. And when he got the chance to sell, he told, I can't remember who the fuck he told, right? But it was. You can buy one, and I'm going to take the money from the sale and go make the other, right? And they bought Natural Born Killers, and he went and made Reservoir Dogs with that kind of stake, right? And I don't know how he would have made Natural Born Killers, right, the same way. Because Reservoir Dogs is so fucking condensed. It's yeah. actually... It's like... It's another thing that everyone... like really with, Everyone who writes thing. indie fucking movies now, you're like, that's well, what this you is like, you could write. This is the formula for indie movies, which is like, yeah. what do you have at your disposal... You have a. I know I can get a warehouse, and I like this is. It's interesting, like for not being Robert Rodriguez, this is the same spirit of like Rebel Without yeah. a Crew. It was like I know yeah. what I can get, I know who I can get, and like originally, you don't have had, to set dress that fucking place, right? He had. <laughs> I mean, like, the, yeah. the budget was so low, they had those guys like bring their own clothes. Like that's what Chris Penn actually wore, which is hilarious. But like originally way to just know your role originally way to know the assignment <laughs> this was going to be a thirty thousand dollar movie yeah. with this is gonna be a thirty thousand dollar movie with a 16 millimeter camera and like just his friends including um lawrence bender who's his, who's like been his producer forever who's going to be nice guy eddie he got a phone call from harvey Keitel, and harvey Keitel says i don't want to just be in the movie i also want to produce it and yep. he got a million and a half to make the movie and that's how yeah that's how he ended up doing it, which is. But what is wonderful is you watch it now and you're like, with the technology at our disposal. Yeah. It feels like a movie. You're like, I could shoot that fucking movie for Absolutely. a pretty reasonable amount. Like me and my friend, John, we just finished our newest script, right? It's like a little fucking indie comedy, comedy drama, whatever. And you're like, this is probably going to be very expensive to try to do. Somehow Reservoir Dogs feels like a big action thriller to me. I think but it's just done on like such a fucking shoestring budget it's because of the way it's cut for one. Mm -hmm. And because then this is like the most important thing about the single location. And a lot of people get this wrong when, it, and like, you know, actually we've, I've written a, I wrote a movie when we were working at wipeout, I wrote a script for you with a single location. And I realized like a year later after we like, didn't do anything with it. Cause it was just like, Hey, it was shitty. But like, we also like realized this is the most important thing about the single location in Reservoir Dogs is that all of the tension exists within the room because we have no idea what's going on outside. There could be 30 cops swarming the place. There could be nothing going on. Like the whole day could be blown. All the tension exists inside that location and the outside world is still like encroaching. It's a really important yeah. and fascinating thing. And that's what Tarantino understood before anything else is that the reason the single location works is not for like quick cutting or anything like that because the camera work is very fluid. It's very quick. It's, it's not quick. Yeah. It's just very, it's very emotionless in a lot of ways, but then it's emotional when it needs to be emotional. But mm -hmm. the tensity of in of that room is just, you could cut it with a knife. It's insane. Right. Well, I, I think beautiful. that's like a, a triple dynamic, right? Is one, one of the things he does, right. Is, I think one of the clever things is how Mr. Pink is constantly telling them they need to leave the room. Yes. 
and they just can't, right? And then they do start to leave the room, right? Because a lot of these stories, they don't let you leave. Right. But they still keep it tight, right? And then one just wonderful actors delivering a wonderful script, right? It's hard to do this movie if you don't have Harvey Keitel and Steve Buscemi screaming at each other. Yeah. Right? And then Michael Madsen just comes in with a soda and just has this fucking all-timer entrance, right? Like, when you have that kind of heft and talent at your disposal right you could fucking sit and linger a lot more right and, and i think it that's that's one of the wonders but one buscemi of the things that is oh is, sorry go ahead and buscemi at this time too is still young enough like i don't remember if he had done living in oblivion yet but this is like this to me is like this is the steve buscemi role that we got through the 90s that everyone wanted him to do through the entire like he was the fucking he's the jumpy guy and you got him to do it. But I think what's really important, and this is like, because Harvey Keitel is Harvey Keitel. You can't do, Har Harvey Keitel does one thing, and it's be Harvey Michael Keitel. Michael Madsen as well, yeah. Michael Madsen does one thing. But they're so good at they're it. They're so good. Like, that's the thing. Like, you can't. You could argue that Tom Cruise, Denzel, like a lot of guys are doing like, like mostly one thing. They do mostly their one thing. Steve Buscemi, though, is like the key for this because he's the character actor who's been hired for this movie. So, Steve Buscemi, you know, like we've all seen now as he's gotten older, he's much more mellow and he's done a lot of much more, a lot of more uh, not like dramatic and much more measured work. When he's doing this scene, like all these scenes, but I love his like constant need to not just like sniff out the rap, but we got to get the fuck out of here. Like mm -hmm. I absolutely adore how, and, and he punctuates every single line almost with, we got to get out of here. Let's get out of here now. Yeah. We do not need to be here anymore. This is a horrible idea. It's Yeah, and that's playing really into what I think is the most important part of this film is how much of it we never see. Yeah. It's right? really so important right off the we bat, don't see. We don't see the fucking gut shot. Nope. We don't see the actual crime at the store. He comes in and they had this almost is it Rashomon or Yojimbo where they tell the three stories of the crime? I think it's Yojimbo, right? It's, or no, Rashomon. No, it's Rashomon. Rashomon. So we see that, you know, he's like, They're, we're fucking set up. And he's like, maybe we were set up. Where were you? And Steve Buscemi's telling his story, right, of him running down the streets of what looks like Burbank, right, somewhere in the valley, shooting it up, running away. And this is a scene that feels like a more traditional, like, movie scene, right? And what's funny is because we haven't seen anything to this point, we're writing the crime in our mind, right, based on the little tidbits we have. Right. The moment you see that, that's the first time they're giving us information, and they're sinking us deeper into the psyche of the criminals because my first thought was that seems like horseshit. That doesn't seem like how he would have escaped getting out of the bank, right? So now we don't even believe him. So the movie's weaponizing the fact that our minds are racing trying to fill in all of these empty visuals, right? We learn that about Mr. Blonde, right? We learn about Mr. Blonde before we ever see him. And what we hear from him by the time he comes in with that soda we've already done an enormous amount of this work right. for the film. And that is one of those, it's so hard to not, because that's the thing, all screenwriters are taught, right? Show, don't tell. Right. This is the movie that says, fuck that, <laughs> right? <laughs> and in a way, it lets us show ourselves something much better, right? I think it's amazing how little they get away with showing us yeah. uh, by the end of the film. Well, I mean, everyone's account of it is so harrowing. I think that's like, but because of that, 
I don't know. It's really fascinating to me. No one seems to be straying from the actual account. Like at the very beginning, when Mr. Pink corrects, uh, corrects Harvey Keitel, like he corrects me because that's not what happened. Like, I think that's a really fascinating thing. And it's a really interesting, like, that's like the inverse of Rashomon is like, all these guys are actually trying to get their story straight, not trying to tell the truth. They just all want to have the same story. And like, even, you know, even Michael Madsen ends up saying like, this is what happened. Like, I know exactly what happened. Like, I, I don't like him not disagreeing with the facts of the case is like a really important thing because again, that's the signal that we all know Michael Madsen, that we all know the Mr. Blonde's out of his fucking mind. Like there's nothing about that. And it's, and what's interesting, like, it's not even, it's not even like you could do this movie. It's always, I always forget. We have like the cutaways to their like before. I forgot how much of the cutaways there were. I did too. And like, again, it's such a strange thing. Cause like, I understand kind of, but I also feel like it's fully unnecessary. This feels like a, we need to get to feature length. I, I would argue, right? a I bit. don't think Just there's a, a cutaway, right? Like, when you cut away to Mr. Pink telling his version of what happened. Right. That feels important to me, right? When you cut away to Mr. Brown and Mr. White and Mr. Orange shooting their way out, right? Mm -hmm. Mr. Brown dies. You watch Mr. Orange, watch Mr. White kill two cops. That feels like it matters, right? Because it's involved in the moments of right. this day. Right. Every flashback that does not that for the most part feels like a waste of our time i kind of think so too like and it's really that, I, I think you because the mr blonde one is useless that's where tarantino is just like i've got some yeah. horrible fucking shit to say that won't age well let's get this out of our system right so we won't even address that i right? got some horrible shit it's to so say funny because only when the i will old be allowed man, to say in 30 years yeah because when the old man just goes enough of this shit i'm tired of it and i go me too jesus christ my 2022 mind can't fucking take the barrage of uh you know fucking filth that you're saying but we get that out of the way right the mr white one offers almost nothing except for linking us to alabama and marcellus wiley and like just tarantino verse right offers me that's nothing almost of value, it right? i think you could argue that the mr orange part works pretty well the mr orange part works well though because it comes at the end it comes after yeah. all it comes almost as like a footnote to what's actually happened and i think that that actually that is the one cutaway that works but it's also it feels like that's what three or four scenes if i remember right instead of just like yeah. one little cutaway right it's an actual part yeah. of the story that we it's a part of the story that we need to know to fully understand what's going on and I, i'm fine with that like that's the part that's the part right. of the that it is the only those are the only cutaways that make sense to me the rest of it again is like a condensed narrative inside one room essentially yeah where these guys are arguing over who's a rat. I think once we know. I always wonder, though, what it would have looked like had they not. Because I love the commode story. I like the idea that we watch him from script to rehearsal mm -hmm. to telling the guys at a bar to then doing his own Mr. Pink cutaway reality scene. And then they do like almost Spike Lee version of mm -hmm. him like narrating within the story with the cops. It's very hyper realized, right? There's something about that that was really fun to watch, right? Again, I think this is one of those, sometimes when you're making a movie like this, you're just like, put all the cool shit you got up there right, and see what works, right? And and at the end, when Mr. 
Orange leaves his apartment, right? He grabs his coat and he looks in the mirror and he's like, you're not going to get hurt today. They're going to believe everything you say because you're fucking cool, man. Right. That's a an interesting character moment, right? This guy who thinks these guys are cool. He's getting pulled in too deep, whatever. I thought that was fine, right? Did it really... Did I need that to know a lot? Because I feel like once he shoots Mr. Blonde, that was a, oh, fuck moment. Yeah. Like an audible gasp the first time you see it. And you're like, holy shit, this is great. I feel like I learned everything I need to know, right? I know he's undercover. I know he must well, be good at his job. I think I, that, and I think you're on to something about it, like being, we got to fill like 90 minutes essentially. Yeah. Because there, yeah, like that tells you everything you need to know right there. Like you need you. There's absolutely nothing that happens in any of the cutaways that is 1000% necessary to understand what this movie is about. You find out who the rat is. I would argue 0% necessary. Other than, (laughs) other than the opening of the movie, there is absolutely nothing that happens outside the warehouse that makes it necessary to be. Yeah. I'm saying once we start the, a guy shot in the belly, it was funny to see zero. That he got shot by the lady who they car carjacked, right. and not in the the crime as we were led to believe, right? Right. Um, that that is the Rashomon stuff that I think can again. It's just like yeah. that to me is like that to me is like seasoning on top of this. You know, that's the to seasoning. Me, it felt the a seasoning little bit on top like of the loading, meal. right? Where yeah. he's like, "Fuck, I've got like a sixty minute movie, but I think I'm really good at this. Like, that what is if the I just seasoning on top of something this really cool? Yeah, absolutely." And Mr. Blonde, swing and a miss. Pretty bad, uninteresting stuff, right? <laughs> Mr. White, also pretty uninteresting stuff. But with Mr. Orange, now we're getting somewhere, right? right? Like, that. that is real work that they're doing there, and it's great. But again, stuff like that is keeping us away from what we want to see, right? I feel like the whole movie, you desperately want to be in that warehouse. Mm-hmm. When Michael Madsen, when they leave, right, and it's just him and the cops, and he goes, alone at last. Every fiber of my body stiffens, right? And you're just mm-hmm. like, oh, fuck. Like, I know what's happening, and I'm still fucking scared. Yeah. He's so wonderful. That's He's, the scene of this movie, too. Well, me. yeah, it's, I mean. It's, it's a this, fucking stunner. It's not only that. It's this, like, deeply menacing moment. Beside, But besides that, it also does this. It also does this Tarantino thing that I think is really important and is echoed through every other movie, which is it's taking this really out of context really out of context uh pop culture moment like they like they talk about like they're and during the diner scene they talk about k billy's sounds of the 70s like isn't that just awesome you know and by the way steven wright is like the perfect voice casting i mean he's just the greatest yeah um but you know they're talking about it and you're like who the fuck again it's one of those amazing things that if you go in blind you're like who the fuck cares about any of this this can't be what the movie is about where these this band's just going to walk around talking about tipping people in K, in K Billy sounds of the seventies when it's a wraparound like that though, and reassigns like reassigns stuck in the middle with you as one of the most sinister odes to just torture. That is like, that's masterful filmmaking. That's recontextualizing yeah. something in a way that only Quentin Tarantino has ever done. Well, it's the part, too, because I feel like a lot of movies find ways to do these kind of sinister, what you don't see is really fucking scary things, right? And people love taking innocent-seeming things and layering them on top of acts of barbarity, right? 
And I think there's something to Michael Madsen just knowing what he did at that bank and never seeing it, right? Showing up with the soda, not really caring. He tells the guys like, hey, we're just going to, I'm going to torture you. I don't really care. I just think it's fun. And it's, you know, the fucking day. There's a scene, though, when he pulls the gun on him. And he's just, like, moving it and, like, kind of laughing and then starts dancing. You're like, oh, my God. Like, he wasn't kidding. He re- That wasn't a, I'm here to torture you. I'm going to do a tough line. He's really getting yeah, off on this. This is not like a, because the rest of the guys are trying yeah. to get information. This is about fucking. They're pulverizing him and tough talking him. And he's like, no, you're just this is my about fucking plaything. Yeah. And the scene, though, when he goes to saw the ear off and the camera just floats up. Mm-hmm. right almost as if the operator has walked away right and it just holds yeah. on that empty space and then he stands up in the empty space now fucking bloody and holding the ear it's just one of those again it's another they don't have to show us the fucking cutting man like there's nothing they'll show us that's as scary as that empty frame for a minute and it's just, i think that's the kind of stuff that he got really well right because i think a lot of times tarantino gets knocked and this film has a lot of that kind of ultra violence flavor, right? Mm-hmm. When, uh, you know, Eddie shoots the cop, we're shooting other cops, everyone's shooting each other, whatever. I think the knowing when to not show it is such an important talent. I think that is that more moment than not anything. getting the close up of the ear is just, and again, it could just be like a simple, but it's so not going to look right. It's That's so grotesque. Issue. I don't know. I read that. Um, I was reading that Wes Craven and Rick Baker walked out of a screening for this movie. And, Quentin Tarantino asked Rick Baker. Rick Baker was like, it's actually a compliment. Like, neither of us could handle what you were doing on screen because it looked so real. Like, it was so (laughs) uncomfortable to watch. They filmed the air getting sliced off? No, no. Like, this was during a screening of the movie during a film festival. Nice. And because, like, it was just, like, the sheer, the sheer novelty of this. And again, like, we've come to know, like, we're now at a point in our Quentin Tarantino lives where like once upon a time in Hollywood literally has him beating up hippies, which again, one of my all time favorite scenes now because beating up hippies is hilarious. Um, Look at you being the fucking man now, (laughs) but but, like that scene is so ridiculous. Like it's so ultra violent and bizarre. You're like, okay, so we're just doing Looney Tunes. This is the first movie that this man's put out. And now it's just like part of the shtick, but like, Imagine being, imagine not having any frame of reference for Quentin Tarantino and seeing Reservoir Dogs and be like, holy shit, this guy yeah. is fucking sadistic. Like, well, you that, see this scene that and is you see the to footprints totally. that lead you to the opening of Inglorious Bastards, mm-hmm. which to me is inarguably the greatest thing Tarantino's ever put on film. Agreed. Right? 1000%. That opening with the milk drinking in Hans Landa, mm-hmm. I mean, in my and this is not to be rude, I don't think Tarantino will ever come close to that scene again. It's it is I mean, one to, of the all time greatest moments in any movie I've ever seen. I mean, Glorious Bastards is my favorite Tarantino movie, but that's that is the best scene he's ever made for sure. Yeah, I think just for fun value, I really have always loved the Kill Bill one and two. They're just right in the wheelhouse of shit I used to love. But what I'm saying is that that Hans Landa scene, right? What was wonderful about that is it is so taut and loaded with dread in what is just absolutely innocuous conversation, right? You just see a Nazi uniform and you're scared. But it's mostly just about milk and this and that. And then when you see the stakes, right? And it's true dread. This scene with Mr. Blonde truly captures dread and is terrifying, right? Right. 
And I think that is what gets lost in some of the other moments throughout his filmography. Sure. Which is not to say that's what he's going for in every scene, no, no, but, but he, the ability in your first film to fucking make this scene absolutely. that powerful. Stunning. That is, it's superb. Again, like, he's just, it's so weird and rare. Like, again, like, we think about the great filmmakers of today. Like, you think about, like, the Coen brothers, Paul, T like, I don't know if anybody else, like, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I remember watching Heart Eight, or it was originally called, well, Heart Eight's the, the first movie he put out. It was originally called Sydney. I remember watching that and being like, I see the husk of, like, how great this guy is at making movies. Because, like, I had seen Magnolia and There Will Be Blood and um, Punch Drunk Love and the other movies he's made before I saw Sydney. And I'm like, I see the pieces. Like, I see, like, the casting and understanding how his camera, like, I understand what he's trying to do. I cannot express this enough. Like Quentin Tarantino making Reservoir Dogs as his first movie is like a one in a trillion shot of a director coming out <laughs> and being almost fully formed, knowing casting, knowing his shot selection, knowing exactly the vibe he's trying to put out. It's, it's it is honestly incredible. Yeah, that written by T Quentin Tarant written and directed by Quentin Tarantino title card might as well have been a fucking stamp. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it's Jesus. A... It's funny because I recently just watched Duel. I had never seen Duel, right, from mm. Spielberg. Yeah. And I was like, that also has to be – I know, obviously, the one everyone will say, like, Orson Welles made Citizen Kane in his first movie out in his 20s. I don't think anyone will ever go that hard on their first movie. <laughs> but, like, when you see that – or you see Duel, right? right? Like Spielberg's Duel is a fucking masterclass mm -hmm. in filmmaking for his first movie. This is the same thing though, right? And that that's like when you're at that level in your first movie, you have such a an absolute grasp on not only your voice, right? But your visual voice. Right. Visual language to me is sometimes so much harder to capture oh, over I the length the, of a film, right? I think visual and look, Quentin Tarantino there is no one who writes a better Quentin Tarantino movie than Quentin Tarantino. And many people have tried tons of people still try <laughs> tons of people still try. And like, not only that there, we've seen people direct Quentin Tarantino scripts. You could argue that me and you have tried, right? We've all gotten oh, that. Like will, we could write a Tarantino. I will make scene. the argument. We've tried many times and it's been <laughs> not great. It's not as easy as it looks. It's, it, <laughs> it's a very specific tonality. And to know that about yourself and know full well, like, you think about natural born killers, true romance. These are two movies that he wrote that were directed by other people. They are so redistributed into the vernacular of the directors that made them particularly natural born killers because Oliver Stone's Oliver Stone. It almost doesn't, it almost stops being any sort of, there's no written by Quentin Tarantino and natural born killers for me. It's so specifically Quentin Tarantino that or it's so specifically Oliver Stone that when Quentin Tarantino makes a movie, you know exactly what you're getting. I think that understanding, not your brand, because that's very like 2020 speak, but understanding. <laughs> under when you knew in the 90s to vertically integrate understanding, all the way from the tippy toes Understanding up, yeah. that you are the only one who can properly direct your scripts is a really fascinating thing to know out the to see out the gate. Well, you because, can see him testing like, I can write, I can direct, I can act. And he's like, maybe yeah. not as much the acting. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's not even a bad actor. That's, no, I but mean, that's what I mean. I think, I think it's just, and I think that was one of the wonderful things of this kind of, kind of 90s renaissance, right? Is instead of everything being so departmented and studio and this and that, 
you just saw these guys that just had something. Yeah. And so, you know, your Robert Rodriguez and Kevin Smith and Tarantino's not not a brand per se, but you felt like you were seeing into their minds. Yeah. You were seeing how in they, a way that a lot of bigger films don't let you achieve. You were seeing what they saw as people like us who are growing up watching movies, loving movies, absorbing movies. You saw this is how they absorbed these movies. And Quentin Tarantino absorbed very specific movies. It's why he's bought half of the one screen theaters in town because quite frankly like that's where he wants to show those movies like there is uh in at the new beverly which is his theater the first theater he bought in town the new beverly for almost i think the first of the year maybe there's like literally he's just doing a doing a schlock fest screening he's doing his grindhouse and that's where he grew up that's where he like that's what he lives on and i think that that's so apparent in all his stuff but reservoir dogs is such an amazing it's such an amazing stamp of approval of like i'm here these are the movies i'm gonna make you can either be on board with it or like you know spend your entire time with the parents council trying to get them unmade like i don't really care mm -hmm. like it is this really fascinating yeah. it is this really fascinating like especially i think it was a 93 like uh 92 like it's this really interesting like fuck you to the entire system but at the same time saying i'm here to play ball so let's do it and like the ball he's playing though yeah. is like give me whatever money you want but i'm gonna make <laughs> my movie it was also one of the first times i felt like people my age were really like picking sides like we were following directors like we did comic book characters. yeah oh totally and it's it it was just a strange unusual time but the stuff we were getting was just so wonderful man mm -hmm. I got a funny story, though. They talk about how uh, Lady E in this movie, she glued this guy's dick to his stomach. <laughs> so when I went, my brother graduated from Indiana University, right? I flew home from California to go party with him. Right, right. And he had met this girl, right? He got in his heart broken. This fucking sack of shit cheated on him. And he ended up, his roommates, the, the girl his roommate was dating and him started dating, right? They'd both been cheated on by their significant others, right? So, like, this foursome had switched. And now it's just the two of them left. And so I was I was leery, right? Spoiler right. alert, this woman is now my sister-in-law, right? <laughs> but I was like, all right. I was like, I know what I'm here for, right? I'm coming to, for the, the walk ceremony, but what I'm here for is as soon as we take the robe and tassel hat off, I'm going hard in the paint, right? I'm bringing back college <laughs> griff. I'm going to take this lady into the deep waters and see how she hangs. And much to my sister-in-law's credit, she looked me dead in my fucking beady, heartless eyes and just said, let's fucking rage. And so we're getting fucking drunk and stoned, whatever. And I was like, I need to go to the gas station and buy some four locos and cigarettes. It was one of those kind of nights. Perfect. And she just was like, I'll come with you. We walk down there and we meet this lady that and this day I'm pretty impaired. So I don't remember the specific specifics of all the scenario. Right, right. They say she was a homeless lady, right? Somehow. Well, I got it in my mind. I'm like, come back to the house with us. Her name was Deborah, right? This old wild Deb. old lady. And she just was a fucking ball of fire. So my brother and all his little normie friends were like, ah, what's happening? And I was like, come up on the porch. Let's fucking get weird. So we're just smashing four locos or mad dogs or box. I can't remember what we're drinking, right? Anything we get our hands on. Right. Chain smoking cigarettes. And this lady's telling us her life story. She told me almost this exact story, right? She was living with the guy. He wasn't paying his rent. She found out he was skipping work to fuck some side piece. <laughs> and when he fell asleep, and these were her exact words, I glued that dirty motherfucker's booty hole together. 
And I went, what? And she's like, yeah, he super glued his entire fucking ass trench, pressed his meat together. And so his entire fucking butt and butthole were just this fucking impenetrable wall. Oh, my God. Of super glue. And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, he woke up screaming that it burned and I cried. <laughs> I called him a bitch. And I was like, wait, what? And I don't, we to this day have no idea how the story ended. Because what happened is I told this lady, I was like, come back in the morning. We'll go have breakfast. And she came back and I had been asleep for like 20 minutes at 730 a.m. And I said, Deborah, last night was wonderful, but we'll never talk again. Please, I'm dying. Leave me alone. And so I never got the end of the tale at my Reservoir Dog style breakfast with her. But she glued this motherfucker's booty hole shut. Shut. <laughs> so guys, don't be cheating. Treat yeah. your treat your girlfriends and boyfriends nice, guys. These are whores that are real. This is not a Quentin Tarantino thing. This happens in the real fucking world. We got to talk about, before we get out of here, the final standoff, man. Amazingly tense filmmaking going on here. Yes. Amazingly tense, especially since we know exactly who did it, right? We right. know who the fucking rat is now. What do you make of Mr. White putting it all on the line? for this fucking kid and why this is a moment that i felt was much stranger than i remember yeah i it's weird you say that because i i agree i i've never been able to pinpoint why like when i was younger i chalked it up to like the exuberance of like yeah there's a good kid right here like you're just doing i don't know your thiefly duty to make sure somebody <laughs> survives Wait, I thought there was no honor amongst these. That's fine. Apparently there's <laughs> honor now amongst these. But I agree, though. Like, it is a very weird moment. And watching it today, I'm not sure I came to a resolution that made sense to me. Like, yeah. I, I kept going back to, the like, the second or third time I watched him. Like, is it just, like, he's a good kid and he wants to see him survive? Or, like, is – I thought, like, I did the swimming today and I'm like, is is he is he in on it? Maybe he's maybe he's another cop in on it. Like I like I could not tell you. I feel like the ending. It is the thing, right? Because I think they do a good job when he's doing his uh, commode speech, right? Right. You see Chris Penn like you had a bag full of pot at the train station, so they set up the fact that Chris Penn already feels like this guy was full of shit, right? Right. Eddie, fucking uh, leisure suit Eddie, right? Nice guy, Eddie. Yeah, he kind of knows this guy's full of shit, right? Which sets up a really nice thing at the end. The fact that at the end, the old timer comes in and he's like, you know, he's the only one I wasn't 100% on, right? I know it was him. Right. The fact that Mr. White doesn't trust him is very strange, right? What I came to, though, I think it might be a much simpler in my mind, right? Imagine the fucking world that these guys have occupied over the course of this film, right? A cop who's fucking murdered a second ago, the ears sliced off, everything's so uncertain. Mr. White has banked himself on one truth. That him and this kid were in it together, and he's going to save this kid. And I was like, was this as simple? And if it is, I think it's kind of brilliant, actually, right? Is it as simple as just this guy had one thing he believed all day, and he couldn't stand to have the last truth ripped out from under him? That's in his mind, he That's just interesting. Knew. I like that. Because the old man tells him the exact line, right? You don't need proof when you got instincts. And in that moment, maybe he hardens his friend and his friend's like, I fucking know this guy's good. We were in this together. Maybe. I mean, it's a nice sentiment. 
I'll agree yeah. with you there. Like I, I, I don't know if it's there because it is the weirdest thing in the movie to me. I, I'm not sure. I'm on board. Like I, I understand what you're getting at, and I, yeah. it sounds, it makes sense to me. I think the hardest part about, the hardest part about it is just, it, it's such a weird. Again, like, yeah, I think that's what makes this movie so unique and such a fascinating first outing is because when you get there. At that last moment, you do, you've already, you've forgotten about as much as you've remembered for this movie. And like, you forget that, you forget one, like, you almost forget that one guy, like, you know that one guy's a cop. And yet it almost does not matter because you know this guy is the exact, he's, he's set the whole fucking thing up, man. Mm -hmm. I think what's really fascinating about the way this movie ends is because I don't, it is like the, it's like, Harvey Keitel's the only honorable character. Is he doing Another it? question for you. At the end, when Harvey Keitel's doing the... He's essentially like the first water boy. Right? When uh, Tim Roth is like in his lap. It was kind of a weird... Because Tim Roth just goes, I'm sorry, I'm I'm a cop, right? And you hear him start going... Mama's not Henry. Right? And he's getting all fucking furious. I was like, twofold, right? Why did Tim Roth not just fucking let him have one? Right? Because he said cops were closing in two blocks away, which is a really weird thing to add in the script, right? Whatever. Do you think Harvey Keitel shoots him at the end? It's only Harvey Keitel on screen. He's got the gun to his chin. We hear the drop it, drop it. And he just rolls off screen as we hear bullets. I was like, I was trying to listen to the timing of the bullet sounds. I was like, did he shoot that motherfucker for being a cop? I think he rolls behind him to use him as cover. <laughs> he MacGruber's him. <laughs> you fucking rat. <laughs> I've actually always assumed that. I, I like for, since like the first screening. I remember thinking like, does he just like let him human shield? He's like, fuck I, you. I always wonder because there's a line early when he goes, "She had a baby." He tries to tell Mister White, yeah, that he has a kid, right? And that's one of the things they keep sprinkling through the movie is Mister White always wants to use his name right mm -hmm. like he wants that human connection i think so i don't know if i if I, in my mind i think he i shot think or it not. is as simple as i think it is just as simple as like you like the kid i i know that's weird and that seems like really anti that's a lot of liking i think that's really anti-profundity for a quentin tarantino type thing but i also think Occam's razor exists in this movie, and that seems like the simplest solution. Is well, it they feel just very the real guys, right? Yes. So like there is something to and like you found out like this they had chatted earlier, like a few days ago, he had found out where he was about from. the brewers, yeah. And like my mighty the, Milwaukee Brewers, yes. Like there's a there's a rapport between the two of them, so maybe it is as simple as like and who knows, he also could be like, Oh, this kid's fucking delirious, he thinks he's a cop, whatever what 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 could possibly like there's any number of permutations to this, but I do think truly it just ends up being you look out for this. You look out for this kid who's gut shot, who clearly just, yeah, you feel bad. You do. And it's so funny because I was talking to Amy, right? We're getting, we're out doing Christmas shopping today and whatever the fuck. And I was like, yeah, I got to watch Kung Fu hustle and reservoir dogs to record mm -hmm. tonight. And she goes, "Ugh, reservoir dogs. I was like, what? And Amy just went so hard. She's like, that movie sucks. I was like, Reservoir Dogs sucks? And she goes, yeah. She, <laughs> or I think her critique was, it's the most pointless movie I've ever seen. 
They just yell a bunch and then everyone dies. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I remember that. And she goes, why, why do I care about that? She's like, what a pointless movie. And I was like, Jesus Christ, Amy. Like, I got to talk about this fucking thing. I will say having watched, I, I do disagree with her, right? I would disagree I with her I think you well. can argue that <laughs> it's very masturbatory, right? Sure. This is definitely a, I'm just showing off. I'm showing out, right? As they say in sports terms. Right, right. You know, we're, we're sportsmen. We're men of sport. We're very, very sport We're showing out, right? Yeah, it, it definitely takes its time and plays uh, with itself, right? And it always just wants to be cool and fun and entertaining. I don't think it's pointless, though, right? I really, I found that that tension and that that man under these, you know, colored monikers, right? I really found a lot to sink my teeth into in this movie, right? Agreed. Yeah, me too. I thought the acting was so good, the writing was so good. It's always fun to go back and see where directors start, and this is one of the upper echelon first movies. I would argue it's a movie that really changed everything after it. So. I somewhat take her point that it's not perhaps as satisfying a journey as you could get, right? Like a lot of movies like this, it's like the thief with the heart of the gold or are we going to watch them get their just desserts? Does anyone feel like they got right, rightly punished? Right. No, whatever. Like, But I, I don't agree that this is a pointless film, as my wife said, not to just throw her out for the, the Tarantino bros to just start throwing elbow drops. Joke's on you. My wife's not on the internet. She's a fucking old-timey pioneer. It's all right. She's on our Discord, so we can start. They, they lob haymakers at the Discord. So join yeah. the Patreon if you want to see that. <laughs> yeah, come have my wife tell me that songs from the Highlander soundtrack sound like you too. It's a – you guys see why I'm so surly and wild when we do these shows. But, yeah, so to wrap up Reservoir Dogs, man, it was an absolute treat to go back. Yeah. And taking this movie, I mean, again, this is one of those, I think a lot of us that were at the right age at the right time, this is just one of these seminal movies. And I think a lot of people went on and Pulp Fiction was, I mean, I think a pretty inarguably better movie than this, right? It really amped up all I the mean, stuff to that me, he it's, was great it's at. It's not even a matter of like better. It's just, yeah, you just see the progression. Like right. someone was giving you more money to do more things, so you did it. And like, yeah. again, it's just, it's a different movie. It's a progression. That's like what makes, that's what makes Pulp Fiction Pulp Fiction. But this is what makes Reservoir Dogs Reservoir Dogs. Wait, yeah. I do have one bit. I do. I do have one bit of trivia because I we we have asked. Apparently, people do like when we have production notes. I do have one thing I want to tell you because the movie would be so different with a different cast. So yes, Quentin Tarantino originally wrote Mr. Pink for himself, Ugh. which would have been rough. Steve Buscemi originally auditioned for Mr. White. Ugh. Michael Madsen originally auditioned for Mr. Pink. Ugh. Here's what? The here's, the, here's the big one. George Clooney read for Mr. Blonde. Which that I, I kind don't of like. hate. <laughs> now, see, that is exactly what we went on to see in From Dusk Till Dawn. Exactly, exactly. And he crushes in that role. So he read for Mr. Blonde, but turned it down. Fucking rube. He wanted and, that Roseanne money. And Christopher Walken flat out refused the role. Christopher Walken was going to do Mr. Blonde? Flat out refused. That actually could have been awesome. I think there is there is something it's about Michael cool. Madsen, though. He just has this 
He looks like 1950s super cool guy. Mm-hmm. And he talks so low and distinct. Like, it's very... He has it's this, very like, specific. It's like the snake you know is charming. You're like, fuck, I don't want to get eaten by this snake, but it's right. got hypnosis. Uh. No, uh, I hate almost all, everything you just said. Samuel Jackson. every word you said. Samuel Jackson auditioned for the role of Mr. Orange. Eh, Which I don't think maybe. that would have I would I actually would have much he's rather He's too badass. He's too badass. Like there's no he's way he would have got gut shot. Just not a chance. He's just too tough. Yeah, yeah. I don't I, I hate all that. I, I'm I glad need, we got the movie we got. But I had to tell you because yeah, I'm glad the, the movie we got was so good. It's a great movie, man. And and again, I know if you're a younger audience member watching it, you're gonna hear in a lot of shit that you don't like anymore. So Given that, if you can get through that, it's a it's a fucking wonderful uh, free film school right there. That's what Tarantino said, right? I didn't go to film school; I went to films. He said he I was think the you most, could learn. He was the least lot. experienced person on set. Yeah, you could learn a lot just by watching Tarantino films, including Reservoir Dogs. Thank you, Edith, for the pick. One Good more pick. of Edith's movies coming up. We need to talk about Kevin. Perhaps the worst day of anyone Oof. in this month of uh, bad days. Guys, please go to the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Pod. A wonderful way to help the show. Every single dollar is appreciated. Come berate a, Amy for her yeah, horrible berate choices. my wife and her wild ass takes that make me the surly bastard you all love. Guys, <laughs> as you can get into our community for as little as a dollar, man. Every dollar is appreciated. See what we're working on, man. We're going to work hard to earn your support. So, again, that's patreon.com slash pod. You can pick the movies you want us to talk about, man. Force the hand. Why uh, not? For a little bit of a donation. So, thank you, guys. The YouTube is filmalchemist. The email is filmalchemistpod uh, at gmail.com. Find us on all the socials. Leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you find the show. Make sure to share the uh, the show on your socials with your pals, with your reservoir dogs and cats. <laughs> uh, more than anything, guys, thanks for starting your year off right with us. 2022 is going to be wild. Hopefully it's uh, not going to have at us like a virgin style like 2020 and 2021 did. Can we just take it easy? Can we talk it easy time? For the film alchemist, I'm Josh Griffey. I'm Alex Tandino. 